rappelling down from the ceiling in the nick of time to save this show. It's Future Please, a heinous trip at Warp 5. My name is Joseph. What's that? Your friends? Your co-workers? They don't want to talk about Star Trek Enterprise with you? Don't worry, that's what we're here for. I'm your co-host, Peter. It's a, it's a new day. It's a new era here on Future Please. Because the show we watched before is most certainly concluded in a hurry. A new one has started. And then with all new beginnings, you know, you have to you have to thank the, f- the folks who got you here. Mm, that you do. Uh, that, inclu- that includes Ian and Sarah, the, the lovely bards that have created all of our theme music through the years. Thank you again, guys. We love the vastly superior to the originals, of course. Vastly. Well, I, I would say that the gap between our theme song and the Enterprise theme song is a little closer now because the season three does give you the better instrumental, but it's what? it's still way better. Ours you're is talk, still way you're better. talking crazy and, and we'll get to that. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, we also want to thank our patrons. Uh, we left you guys out in the cold for a while. And, and we are committed. We are pot committed to doing a review of of Reanimator to spice things up a little bit. So, thanks for for uh, hanging tight. And we did miss basically a quarter of content that we typically uh, lay on you guys. So, we uh, we will come back to you with that here soon. Thanks for your and then contributions. Some. So, oh, we've got other plans. We've got other plans. And then, uh, thanks to really everybody that has been enduring through our reviews of some of the worst star trek imaginable you know like voyager's kind of a fan favorite you gotta like us a lot to endure the first (laughs) seasons of enterprise so we see you we appreciate you uh and we're really glad you made it here i'm glad we made it here too that was rough it was it was we we have not as of the time of this recording actually done our season two rip but i don't see that being a um polite process in terms of our assessment of the show called it season poo for a reason i think i think we're going to be quite unkind (laughs) um but i am quite prepared uh to be kind towards something and that is Wanting to hear about Chrono Trigger, Peter. You have you piqued my personal interest by sharing quite a long uh, essay, we'll say, about your uh, your intentions to play Chrono Trigger for the first time. Yeah, we'll uh, dip off into some nerd talk here. And thankfully, while we were uh, talking about why we didn't produce any Patreon content, uh, I didn't say, hey, you know, it's been real busy at work, and then turn around and immediately talk about how I've been playing video games. <laughs> It's a hobby uh, podcast, Peter. We're allowed to have lives. <laughs> uh, you know, gaming as a parent is hard. Uh, I basically have to wait until the kids are in bed. So that means a lot of times, like not even starting till 11 p.m. I got through uh, Wolfenstein, New Colossus, which I really liked and uh, resolved to go back and hit some of that old school. Uh, Chrono Trigger was real big. And, you know, per that Facebook post I talked about, like, Gaming in the mid 90s was very different than today. You didn't have a lot of the influence that we have in terms of social media, uh, video game TV shows, reels and stuff on various social media. 
you know, it was word of mouth through your friends. And then after that, there were a couple of magazines out there you might pay attention to. And that's how you found out about the good games. And sometimes it'd take a little yeah. bit longer. If you saw a TV commercial for a video game, that would have been a rarity, a true rarity. I think the first one I ever remember seeing uh, was that wasn't for like specifically for like Mario Brothers because, you know, they had a cartoon. There sure. was like actually a programming block there when I was really young was probably Final Fantasy seven. You know? And so, even that was late in the game. It was. That's PlayStation era. That's well after this. That you know, I was in high school when that came out. I think. <clears throat> so you know, you'd find out about good games after they'd made their way. Maybe the guy at the used game store would make some recommendations. It's interesting because Chrono Trigger came out right up against the PlayStation, and that was kind of like the last big send off for the Super Nintendo. Uh, I never touched it. I always meant to get around to it. All my friends swore by it. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go and I'm going to play it. I'm going to do it right. I got this big 32 inch Sony Trinitron, like the Cadillac of of monitors. Of, you would have uh, been only the rich kids had those in 1995. And that's the cool thing about like retro gaming, you know, is being able to play th- with things the best, of the best playing a game that's been out for 16 years on your PC, like your middle of the line graphics card today is going to be vastly superior to whatever the high end was back there. Sometime to the detriment. That's a problem with like computer retro gaming is your computer can be too good and it causes problems. But the nice thing about console gaming is, you know, video game consoles are time capsules. And however, the uh, developer intended for you to play that game back in 94 or 97, you can still play that today with the hardware. It's the only thing that's difference is What's the TV you're playing on? Obviously, uh, old retro consoles don't work out great on LCD. So I was like, oh, I'm going to get this big monitor. It's going to be great. So good. Uh, my friend Nate loaned me uh, Chrono Trigger Super Nintendo cartridge. Nice. Like a $250 to $600 game cartridge, depending on how much of the fucking boxes and pamphlets you have. Yeah, like a complete copy that's played is plus 200 plus. Yeah, it's, it's an expensive. As a matter of fact, fell down this rabbit hole just looking up i saw turtles in time and granted it was a japanese release but it was a new inbox mint turtles in time super nintendo six thousand three hundred dollars sold 41 bids wrap your head around that that does man i guess you can learn collectibles i guess from everything and and to a degree it makes sense because what's happened well millennials are turning 40 so they got money now Sure. Just like blow on weird shit, just the same as their ancestors. So like while their boomer parents were, were, were turned 40, they were, you know, buying Corvettes. They were buying, you know, cheap, expensive cars or baseball cards or comic books. Well, this is what we're doing. <laughs> we're buying turtles in time. If only people were buying the Star Trek figures, I might have some money I'm sitting on. But. He loaned it to me. I, you know, we, I had to ask him which of the three save files I could delete, which is always hard to, you know, make the cut on one of them. And I'm sitting there in the basement next to this big TV with my oldest daughter. Daddy, what is that? What, like the confusion as she saw the graphics and what I was doing. She's like, is that work? <laughs> <laughs> it must be. It's it appears so it appears so joyless compared to what I've seen. Uh, and I put a good two hours plus in on it uh two hours on the super nintendo controller with adult hands is a much different game than uh you know 15 minutes here and there just reliving the good days on street fighter 
I I own Chrono Trigger on Steam and I got a Steam Deck and I was like, well, I wonder. And let me tell you what, playing Chrono Trigger laying in my bed on that mm-hmm. nice Steam Deck, mm-hmm. I can appreciate uh, the retro appeal, but there's a right way and a wrong way to play this game. <laughs> You and the, the right trouble way. of getting an SNES, of borrowing your friend's copy of the game, deleting getting, one of his save files, deleting one of his saves, getting his permission to save, pulling the controller of- apart to clean all the contact points on the PCB because my uh, buttons were sticking. And then you get a perfect top of the line uh, CRT television to get the best possible retro recreation experience. And you get two hours in and you're like, nah, bitch, I'm playing that on my steam deck. Yeah. And that's the way to go. And, <laughs> you know, yeah, and I'm not sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, games really good though. I'm off to a strong start. Very impressed to see the creativity and ingenuity that went into that game. And as far as I can tell, just from the, what I've played so far, the hype uh, is well-deserved. And this thing really is, uh, you know, I think the best that SNES could have been capable of. Like, I'm, I'm very impressed so far. And just the simplicity, too, just another time. You know, it, it lends itself well to being a parent game where I can set it down, deal with whatever. It's there. The gameplay is good. The story is good, but it's not, like, so immersive that, you have to get flow going to really appreciate it. You can, you can pause it and go eat dinner or listen to what your mom's yelling about, you know, or about how many hours in did you say you're at? I don't know how many hours I, I just got into the future and, um, I just okay, got so the you've robot. Been to the, you're companion. the far, you're the far future for the first time. Yeah. I just got robo. So it's, you know, I, this is one of the classics. I'm like me and a million other people have played it a million times. So we kind of like know where you are along the journey. It's cool that, you're appreciating it as much as you are because you've really only scratched the surface. Oh, absolutely. It's like as good as the game is right from the jump. Like it just keeps getting better. It just keeps managing to innovate on itself. And the mechanic they come up with for really getting you interested in returning to it, even after you've beaten it is also quite clever. I, you know, they put me on trial for uh, kidnapping the princess and the game going back to my previous, you know, eating the guy's lunch, saving the cat. Um, the fact that she bumped into me and that I, I picked the pendant up and then saying that I was trying to rob her, like stuff that I, I, to, I, I always thought that the first real example of a game going back on your previous accomplishment or tasks was like uh, Metal Gear Solid one by Psychomantis, like reading your memory card and stuff, which blew my fucking mind as a whatever. And seeing this SNES game have the forethought to do stuff like that was really incredible and thoughtful. Yeah. And, and pretty seamless, right? Like, yeah, these, these little, little JRPG things you're used to doing. Beep, boop, 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 boop. I'm walking around. What am I doing? You're not used to that mattering. Right. And then suddenly it's all the thing to the story. Hey, I'm going to walk in your house. I'm going to talk to you. And then I'm going to take all the shit out of your closet and leave. I mean, I just fucking robbed you and nobody ever has a, a problem with that. And that's just video game code is that you can go into people's houses and take their stuff until like fallout or skyrim at which point you know bethesda's punishing you for robbing people in plain sight 
So seeing again, uh, casual actions matter in a cartridge. Really interesting. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting much, much deeper in this thing. All right. Well, you know what? I thank you for indulging my curiosity and by uh, virtue, the curiosity of anyone who wanders by this podcast now into infinity. Yeah, make sure you throw some Chrono Trigger uh, meta tags on this so we get a bunch of people. Take advantage of what we can. No yeah. interest whatsoever in Star Trek, but might want to hear uh, a 40 year old's take on a game that came out 20, how many years? More than 20, right? Almost 30 years ago. 28, uh, 28 yeah. Three so Speaking of things that won't disgust you, though, Peter, what did we watch this week? This week we're getting into season three. Episode one, the Zindi first aired the 10th of September, 2003. Written by Rick Berman, Bran Braga, and directed by Alan Croker. Look at that first air date, man. September 10th, 2003. Two years after the day. It's kind of nuts. And you can feel it and see it all over this fucking thing. It is. Uh, before we start talking about what actually happens plot wise in it, I, I'm hard pressed to really come up with a lot of TV shows that, and let's, I'm going to assume for a moment that this, the stylistic changes that we're seeing are going to continue. Yes. I mean, it feels like going from watching the Firefly TV show to watching the movie. The people are the same, but yeah. like, yeah, everything else about it is different. The tone, the pacing, the lighting. It looks familiar, but not quite as familiar as you're used to, you know? It's a really, really, it's like maybe even better in a, in a way than its original version, but it's definitely not the original version. I mean, can you think of anything else that had that kind of a tone change between seasons? Like this kind of hard change. I mean, I guess you could say that was the case for TNG seasons two to three to a degree, not nearly to this degree. But, you know, the the whole Ensigns of Command era when the new producers took over from the guys who are TOS old holdovers, you know, like when Gene Roddenberry and his, his friends finally were totally off the scene, that definitely instituted quite a change in that show but even that isn't quite as dramatic here that was mostly mostly just like younger people writing was really the vibe they weren't writing 60s stuff anymore this is just not just writing but visual design acting focus action action oh god (laughs) the whole it's a whole re it's a it's a refit i almost think that if this is going to continue forward at the quality we've seen, which is what you are telling me is going to happen. This thing should have just gotten a different title. It kind of did. Did you notice? Uh, the intro is different. I'm, I'm saying no, that in the intro title, it was just enterprise. You know what it is now? Star Trek enterprise. I look at what happened with uh, Orville. Yeah, that's probably a good, that's probably the better example. The tone shift. It's like not comedic. <laughs> now it's like t- 
totally decided that it's not ever it's not telling jokes on purpose. Uh, Orville, when they went over to Hulu, what was the rebrand that they got? Strange New no, Horizons. New Horizons. Um, you know, I, I think something to that degree could have been due here for for just how different this product is than what the previous would we say fifty ish episodes. So, uh, as we open in this one, we get a quick recap, just in case that you forgot that Earth got 9-11. Just a quick, here here it is, the poor state of Florida, RIP. And then we have our cold open, which is a little table uh, of the convening of the Legion of Doom (laughs) over there. (laughs) Definitely a table of shady motherfuckers. This is space Al Qaeda. They're having conversations being hosted on Geonosis. So (laughs) maybe it's a Legion of Doom. Maybe it's the Confederacy of Independent Systems or Separatist Alliance for us, a Star Wars people. And uh, it's all the colors of the rainbow under this thing, man. You've got manatee people. There's insect people. You got some Zorax in there. You got uh, some sort of a. A, a Sasquatch or a Yeti. Um, as you said, yeah, they've, they've got the, the dudes floating around in the tank and it's just bad nineties CG abound that we've this, this is some prime Lucas arts CD ROM, <laughs> especially separate. the insectoids, especially the, the, these indie ex- insectoids, they, are rough and they which, don't which, which really lends itself you know like i'm saying that joking about this confederacy of separatists because this is right up on top of phantom metis you know it's well, true actually, well it's, that was 99 wasn't it yeah but i mean you, you push deeper in with some of the other follow-ups uh, and star wars star trek have always had kind of an incestuous relationship of okay they're they're moving in this direction. It's getting traction. We're going to start doing a little bit of that. So throw in some some CGI mm, Geonosian soldiers in there. I guess like Attack of the Clones was 2001. That was only two years prior to this. Sure. So, um, and that's Geonosis heavy. And I hit this moment of realization as I'm sitting there watching all of these villainous uh, creatures plot and plan against Earth w- waving around their their video game quality appendages. (laughs) And I realize I don't give a fuck. Like I've seen so much good CGI at this point with modern television Mm -hmm. where it's great looking CGI and the story is just trash or it's throwaway tropey crap where like I can appreciate good CGI, but it isn't necessary. And it can almost like be a guy standing there with a stick and a piece of paper of what you're supposed to be looking at. Like, like it's a filler for special effects. And I almost feel like my mind's eye can do the rest of it. So even though the graphics are crap, I appreciate the fact it's not all dudes in trash bag costumes. They're trying. It certainly looks better than species eight, four, seven, two. Well, I mean, don't damn them with too faint of praise. (laughs) That was particularly gnarly. It was terrible, but I mean, you understand like, they're trying something different. Oh, no, I get what you're going with here. Like, this is pretty intricate for the era. Yes, it's not the most high res stuff. Uh, you know, it's 
It's got its problems, but it's not taking away from it. It's good enough that you're selling what you're doing here, which is you've got a whole bunch of different looking species who are all hanging out, having a conversation about doing snidely whiplash things. And especially the manatee people. Like that was the best part. Like the, the they just sweat you all of a sudden. They just cut to the window. It's like, oh, there's also sea people here. <laughs> what is the fuck is this? <laughs> just is like, it like yeah. every endangered species that got pushed <laughs> off Earth? And they're like, let's get the fucking humans. Let's fucking get them. Two legs bad. <laughs> so I, I get. To, they don't really say, do they? Who they are. I mean, they're not like you don't have Lex Luthor up there banging the gavel. I call to order the Legion of Doom, the the Zindi Alliance or whatever their their technical name is. But you know exactly what's going on here. Yeah, you know, these are the bad guys. And what a Zindi is, is starts to be something that is discussed. What's interesting to me, though, is I obviously know who they all are. Like some of these guys are recurring characters for the season. And I know like what the the whole backstory of the Zindi and it was interesting to watch this being like, oh, they don't really, they don't download that information right away. I forgot how slowly some of these revelations build. So that added a layer to, for me of like, oh, okay, this is, you go into the scene, you don't really fucking know who these people are. You don't know what a Zindi is. Is like one of these is Zindi. Like what the fuck? Um, and you know, it's, it's a clear message. Uh, the, the humans vessel, are coming. Yeah. The humans are coming. Who's metagaming? Who's cheating? Why would the humans fly all the fucking way out here of the entire galaxy and know exactly where to go? Um, Something's fucky. Uh, We need to stop this ship because this is the first wave and there's probably more ships coming and there's, you know, dissent on the council on how to handle Enterprise. Should they just fly out and gang stomp this thing? Uh, Should they play it cool and see what they're doing exactly? And eventually, by the end of their little meeting, it's uh, it's Zorak, the praying mantis man or whatever he is, <laughs> who wants to just be like, crush these fools. We, we need to kill them now. Um, he does not get his way. They decide that they're going to try and get some info and make some educated moves. But Zorak's like, all right, but if this goes on too long or if you guys don't do the right job, I'll fly out there and blow up Enterprise, despite what the council says. Period. I like that they key in on it because it's like there's no earthly. <laughs> didn't mean to put it that way. There's no reason why an Earth ship would just come exactly here. It's 50 light years from their planet. They'd have to know we're here. So, like, something's up. Which I'll be curious to see if this council eventually. You know turns around to the conclusion, like, do we have a mole? Is there somebody in the, the, the Zindi Alliance that's betraying us? Are there spies? Because that's, you know, your first, uh, that should be the first logical conclusion once your your plans are out there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> RPG days, either someone's snitching on you uh, or the other person's cheating, which in this case is, you know, people from the future telling you the playbooks, but... <laughs> Well, you get the strats in advance. It is easy to sell the the, the whole place. But mm-hmm. when when we finally return through our uh, upgraded intro. No, let's talk about this goddamn thing. Okay. 
Okay. You didn't want to brush past it. You got to, you got to discuss it. Okay. How are you, are you being serious when you're telling me that you think that the season three intro is an improvement over season one? Yes. I think that the busier arrangement with more instrumentals is better. Joe. <laughs> I mean, I think the worst part of the song is the, is the lyrics. And by like crowding out the lyrics a little bit and, and just doing more things with instruments, I think you are turning down the worst part and amplifying the more tolerable part. And that is a net victory. I mean, I think the worst part of the intro is the whole goddamn thing. And if you're going to do a change, <laughs> throw just, that whole motherfucker in the trash. And I think you'd just be better off uh, playing like a test tone pattern. Just do the whole way through for 60 seconds or whatever it is. This new opening, it sounds like the old shitty intro had a love a child with the intro of Full House. And this is the, the result. <laughs> it does have that soft 90s feel to sitcom. it. Sitcom. Yeah, it does have a sitcom feel to terrible. it. Terrible. Terrible. I am going to have to cross every T and dot every I because... Uh, the the idea that I may be punished, <laughs> yeah, by having to listen to by this. having to watch this even worse version is legitimately terrifying to me, and I'm forced to yet again. Who is telling Brand Braga and and Berman like, no nah, man, this is good. We should show this before every episode. Well, according to the Memory Alpha, they knew that people didn't like the intro and I think the change was potentially to, you know, change it up so they can maybe uh, uh, move some hearts and minds. I worked for me. I think that it's still bad, but I, I think it is a little bit better. Uh, it's still, like you said, something they should have disposed of entirely, but you shatter a professional relationship when you do that. The only reason so, I don't know, maybe they just felt like people will just endure it, which uh, that seems unwise. Just as they predicted, uh, you know, video chat and bio beds, they were able to predict that in the year 2021 or whenever they invented the skip intro feature, people would finally be alleviated of this terrible <laughs> cross to bear. Uh, the only reasonable answer I can come up with is that it's a troll move and they're just antagonizing people intentionally. No, I, I, I th maybe. Maybe the guy who made the song is a family friend or some weird Hollywood relation. And it's apparently a, a it's apparently a rendered down version of a Rod Stewart song, which is why the vocalist sounds so much like Rod Stewart, because they specifically went and found yeah, someone who did. I, I know Rod Stewart when I hear Rod Stewart. This, yeah. That doesn't there... make it OK, though. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we finally arrive on Enterprise. And they are in one of their new sets. This is a new season. When you have a new season, you actually get to do have new sets. And this is a new command center, which we find out during the scene is, you know, got all the best sensors that Starfleet could load on to Enterprise. And they just like carved a room out of this some a storage room, storage area and, and, and turned it into this sweet place with all the flat screen televisions. Sweet place. OK, so I, I describe this in my notes, this command center, which is very dim with some track lighting on certain areas. Looks to me like it's a movie theater self-serve ticket kiosk area. 
where everybody will just funnel in and be like, hey, I want to watch uh, whatever fucking movie's in right now. And you can just buy your own ticket without having to deal with a human and move on. You know, it's hard. It's so poorly lit. It almost feels like an Alex Kurtzman Trek room. <laughs> Let's have all of our moody dialogue and unlit faces in this room. You look at Astrometrics from Voyager. Right. Which was like, yeah, this... and that's kind of what they're going for. Yeah, but like that set looked cool and and good. And I think it's them attempting to ground Enterprise in the available. In the near in the accessible future, as if we want to call it that. Watching it by today's standards just makes it look so dated, low end, cheap, shitty and bad. This looks like a conference room from a hotel instead of anything paramilitary or whatever look they were going for. They were close. It was just kind of like some busy shit that they put in the middle of the room that cheapened it as they panned over from the beginning. And yet Archer start talking about it. Like the stuff that's in the walls and all the computer screens and all the big flat screens. I think that actually looks good. You know, like you've got all these different stations. It is of its era, but I get what they're going for. And that sells it. And then they pan over and you just see like a bunch of cheap, like, you know, lit up stuff in the middle that are supposed to be, I don't know, something that they use. doesn't make any sense. It's just tacked on and it ends up making it give it that cheap feel, I think. The, the difference between this and Astrometrics, in my opinion, is that what made Astrometrics, Astrometrics cool is because it was a new set. They just, you know, shot everything high, if you remember. Like, there's a lot of shots that come in from the top. It's a tall sw- room. And swoop in because they just built themselves enough space that they can actually play in third, three dimensions, unlike on their legacy sets where they didn't have that capacity. So everything's shot real, you know, face level. So, Which is ironic that they would make the option in Voyager for these high shots, because if seven of nine is in the scene, they're always just going to be at boob level. Yeah, they're going to come out real. They're going to start real wide so you can get boob and butt, you know, and maybe there'll be a pivot around to the butt and then up, Mm -hmm. you know, just whatever someone like David Livingston is feeling that day, you know, Mm -hmm. like, am I an ass man or am I a tits man? Which way am I today? Um, but yes, I ultimately agree. It does look a little cheap, but I think they're real close on the design here. And they did not give themselves the option of shooting it differently. Was my other thing was this looks like every other fucking room <laughs> enterprise. It's got the same kind of tech. There's nothing really interesting except the fact that it's not well lit, which is not a plus. I think I would have been down to just see maps and papers on the table. We know they still use regular books. Right. Yeah. We've seen paper books in a lot of people's hands. And I think that that's what that's missing is this WW2 uh, office of OSI or some sort of just people have been in here round the clock working hard coffee cups and, and stained papers and plus the computer stuff. But whatever. It's a new set piece. I'm happy to see it. We'll see what kind of stuff they do here. The thrust of this conversation is that they are trying? They're in the 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 Delphi Expanse. Is that what it's called? The Delphic Expanse. They're in there. They have not gotten a lot of traction. Um, and Archer is trying to move on to the next lead. You got Reed in there with T'Pol. Reed objects to Archer's uh, m- uh, mining game plan. There's some miner that they've gotten rumors has a Zindi 
in his employ and reed's like i don't know this guy seems sketchy and then you get this scene where uh archer blows up and basically says we can't play it safe anymore we've been here all this time we've got all these resources there's all these hopes and expectations on us to succeed and we have nothing to show for it yet and we got to start getting reckless and wild we got to get 24 on this motherfucker they say they've been there six weeks and gives you just kind of a separation from where you were at the end of season two so not a lot to show for apparently that six weeks of effort so a lead on they're just trying to get a member of the cindy species they want to get their hands on just a guy just some guy because that that's better than what they've done so far so they ultimately um decide to move forward with this lead which is going to this mining colony before they get there though we have some other adventures going on on enterprise that um uh, end up factoring into things that occur in this episode or setups for later on in the season the first is that hoshi has the first conversation with the makos uh including a recurring character uh played by stephen culp uh, Major Hayes, or as I like to call him, the guy who should be the weapons officer. Yeah. So again, something that Voyager wasn't willing to do, and that's radically expand the the ensemble cast uh, to grow the crew, to bring in new faces and new dynamics there. I, I want to say this is like really Hoshi's only part this episode of note. Yes. And someone in the trauma support group had pointed out earlier that like moving into season three and four, the non trip to Paul and Archer characters, like basically all get reduced to Neelix special guest status. And yeah, I see particularly it. season four. Um, I'm sad. I don't think Hoshi has a single like focus episode in season four at all. Not that I remember. She's got like one in season three. Part of me wants to say it's sad. Uh, the other part of me is like they've had two seasons and I still don't care about any of these characters fundamentally. Her best season of her best episode of season two, uh, her best scene, I should say, from season two was a fucking extra on a DVD. Deleted it scene. It was deleted from the episode. Her best episode was uh one that you and I came up with and that was taking co-genitor and putting her in the hot seat instead of trip. Yeah. We're really good at writing better Hoshi episodes than this fucking show has managed. So, you know, her, even Mayweather who, you know, I fucking detested for a majority of the first two seasons, they finally started bringing him around to be someone who's kind of interested. And even at that point, I'm like, I don't care enough to really miss the guy. Uh, unfortunately, Reed, who is demonstrably the worst of the the first two season cast looks like he's getting elevated into relevancy by putting him up against these Mako guys. Which, which would be interesting if you didn't immediately just want Major Hayes to be that main tactical officer. Like they waste no time. But first of all, the actor, Stephen Culp, he's he's like a, that guy on television. Um, I remember him from the West Wing most vividly because he played like the Speaker of the House or something. And um, but he's he was on Desperate Housewives. He was on ER. He was on a million things. So he's a worker. 
you know, he's one of these guys who gets a lot of consistent TV stuff and he knows the assignment. Like these guys, these guys look like Marines. You know, they look different than the, the soft civilian crew. They have some real severe looking uniforms and they're like, yes, sir. No, sir. They stand ready at attention. Um, They're, they're built different. What's interesting is one of the three guys sitting at the table with them, the Asian, notably the only minority to the uh, Makos that I've seen so far, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The Asian dude, did you recognize him? Daniel Day Kim. He was, was, he's Hawaii Five O, I think, to most people, but uh, to us, he was from that Voyager episode when he was- Time Donut. Time Donut, yeah. Which was great. He was the uh, astronaut that came on board- and ultimately was able to sway the surface to stop firing nukes up at uh, at uh, Enterprise. So, or, I'm sorry, Voyager. So cool reuse of former talent there. The conversation is basically just a way for the Makos to introduce their how different they are. Um, you know, they talk about how they know all the officers and all of their missions because these are professionals. Um, the you know, they are. Uh, no, they're they're all business. They're going to go train some more. They're waiting for their opportunity to fucking crack skulls in the name of humanity. And it is interesting to see that, like, this is military. You know, Starfleet is paramilitary. You know, they, they serve a defense role, but they're mostly scientists and diplomats. And they have a hierarchy and structure, but they're not military. This is what military people look like. And and seeing that up against a Starfleet officer is interesting, you know, to like actually see the difference. So maybe we're looking too close because trying to figure out what's going on with Earth and Earth governments, you know, like chasing your tail with Star Trek. Uh, but are these Marines uh, employed by the government of Earth? Like, yes. So, and I guess eventually Starfleet would replace. Well, no, because again, uh, Reed said that there's still a wet Navy in practice, right? The way it's supposed to work is my understanding is that Starfleet is expressively not a military organization and is not a military organization even in the 24th century. It's an exploratory diplomatic corps. Correct. And it plays a defense role. It, it assumes a paramilitary role, more generally speaking, in that it is more a police than a aggressor force going to conquer territory. Um, and these guys are actual military and were, were employed as the military force of the United Earth. So one presumes that they were likely existed to deal with Earth-based problems and ending the third world war as as things calmed down and people came together i'm sure not all of that was peaceful well it's real shame where these guys, guys come from real shame these guys couldn't have been on hand up in antarctica when uh the borg on ice were discovered then. Yeah, no shit <laughs> we're gonna see how fucking good these guys are soon yeah. enough uh things wrap up there with our initial meet and greet with the mako they fly off to this mining colony. At some point, it dawns on me that DePaul looks radically different. Yeah. At this point, uh, DePaul has left the Vulcan High Command 
She has resigned her commission and she is aboard Enterprise purely as a civilian consultant. Uh, and what I had always thought was just simply civilian clothing before, apparently her previous spandex leotards were in fact Vulcan uniforms. And now that she doesn't have to wear those anymore, she has switched over to these ridiculous retro Barbella Barbie doll outfits. The blue one in particular is so bad. You know, it's got the, like the weird bars on it. It's, it looks like, uh, the fucking space guy from, uh, Futurama, right? Where he's got like the silver fin <laughs> shoulder things coming off. Like that's what that is. Form fitted. It's this one actually has like a plunge for cleavage. It's made out of felt. All sorts of shades of late Kess in these outfits, right? Yeah. They, they took old late season Kess leotards and they put 50s retro bullshit space shit on it. They also redid her hair. I mean, dramatically. Also, late season Kess awful. And then they gave her like traditional goofy Vulcan eyebrows. There is nothing good going on. Uh, I personally and, you know. This is 40 year old me talking not I want to see boobies on network TV teenager me talking, but like throw in a fucking uniform, man. Don't give her pips. Suit her up, make her Starfleet, whatever, but very clearly, especially after uh, Bounty, you know, we, we have been reminded at gunpoint why T'Pol is on the show, and it's for yeah. curves and looks. The intention with her hair and makeup and eyebrows was to give her a more traditionally Vulcan severe look, which maybe they thought would balance out with the obvious exploitation of her femininity the show will continue to uh, lean upon, as it does in this episode, in fact. Um, but it is not something that works overall. And oh yeah. Also in this, we do get the graph plating issue where, uh, they go to the, the, one of the cargo bays and trips like, Hey boss, uh, watch this. We got a problem. And apparently some spatial distortions that they are experiencing is causing just everything in this cargo bay to slam across the wall against what gravity would generally dictate, which is amazing. Yeah, because the coolest part for me of the um, the expanse, the the season two uh, finale was the campfire stories that the Delphic expanse is haunted, basically, and that ships come out having been event horizoned. It drives people crazy. A Klingon cruiser emerged where everybody had been turned inside out and that the laws of physics themselves go wild here. So this is some real nice uh, reminder that they are in the wild, wild west, that shit goes crazy and that they are unwelcome. And this is very dangerous, not only in terms of alien aggressors, but just this the space itself is dangerous. Uh, they and are. They're, they, yeah, they're in danger even from space. I think is is a nice way to set up the stakes for the season. So they they do that. So they only do it a little, but they do it enough to let you know it's happening. It, it's in this first act that we get our first tease into 
them force marching the the romantic subplot of the season into place. Uh, I mean, I, I do actually like the idea of Trip not sleeping well, having nightmares about his sister, getting destroyed by the Zindi weapon. That all tracks. I understand that if we're doing the terrorism plot line, that's going to be in there. But this whole concept of the fact that Phlox has to convince T'Pol to give Trip, like basically Vulcan chiropractic care uh, to get him over his trauma. And that like, instead of like discussing it like adults, he's going to set up this weird bedroom encounter. I don't get what they were going for with that. Like this does not come off enough as some sort of innocent mistake. This seems like Fox is purposefully getting you two together so that you'll bang. Yeah, he's playing matchmaker. And yeah, like and if, if they had a scene of like at last the tension will be resolved and those two will finally find happiness together. Because I'm Flox, I understand people so well. I know that they wanted to fuck. I'm Flox. I know that she just wants to have sex and she needs to have sex or he needs to have sex. And where I was I was unwilling to have sex to fix a problem in bounty. <laughs> I'm more than willing to put other people together to have sex. I like to manipulate trip into fucking people. I tried to get him to fuck my wife and he wouldn't, but I will succeed in getting him to fuck to Paul. This is a real disservice to uh, the show itself because they have. I think to previous to this point, previous to the expanse, done a great job in building a bridge between trip and to Paul and her slow burn shyly coming out of her shell around trip culminating in what's the one where uh mayweather twists his ankle or reed twists his ankle on the comet vulcans like to watch oh uh yeah the well that was at the beginning you know the the, the one where they were right. on the on the comet and then and it that's, was slowly built all the way through the season it was a very strong start which is i am in a pre uh Prearranged marriage. I don't want to do it. Part of why I might be on Enterprise is because I want to run away from this tradition or I want to run away from my obligations. I'm confiding all of this in you, Trip, because it's clear I, I'm kind of sweet on you a little bit and you have helped guide me. And there have been several times where T'Pol has used Trip as that emotional, intimate confidant. There's even more examples where she should have used him and instead she used Archer for silly reasons, but whatever. And then we get to the Expanse last season where they try to repaint the picture of Trip uh, from being this guy who had been growing sweet on her to the point where he's like inviting her out to movie nights and like really needling her to get more involved and, and open up to like reverting him to this weird the version of trip that would argue and get in her face on the bridge when she would give orders that he disagreed with. And Archer's right. like, Oh, I would think if anybody on the ship was ready to see her go, it would have been you. Nah, you know, she grew on me a little bit and it's like, why, why are you taking this step back? And then you get into this uh, episode, season one episode or season three, episode one. And it's like, they've completely erased whatever goodwill they had established between these characters. And now they're back on this quirky, rocky, uh, step one. Well, and worse than that, um, they just make it so blatant rather than allowing the tension to build naturally. Like you could have continued to have these, these two 
essentially become more interested in each other slowly as time went on. And, and when you finally reach the point where you want them to be physically intimate, spring that on the audience. Instead, you're like, here we go. I'm ordering you. I, we're going to have them start touching each other with their fucking shirts off in episode one of the season. You know exactly what's going to fucking happen. You know exactly how it's going to fucking happen. They're just leaving you no space to see the relationship develop. You know, it's they're going to have some kind of fucking circumstance where they got their shirts off with each other at some point in the season. And they're going to fuck like, oh, OK, of that's course. the vehicle that they're using here is that yeah. uh, I can't sleep. I can't sleep because my sister died in this terrorist attack. And like the rest of the United States, I'm traumatized by this terrorist action. uh, And I'm in a dark place. Uh, T'Pol can't sleep because weird physics are interfering with my meditation. Instead, it could be, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in a bad place because my sister died. I need someone to talk to. To Paul, you just threw your fucking career in the trash and you are so far off the rails of what logic dictates, you know, of what being a good Vulcan is like. You're in a real weird place. Also, you've got Vulcan AIDS and there's still this like there's a real vulnerability that to Paul should have that she should be looking to deal with in private. And those two coming together as intimate friends and then falling into a romance all the handholds are there like the ladder yeah, is there you to don't climb. have to work at it you've done the work you can do this now and instead of allowing this to naturally unfold over the course of the season you know in these episodes they just decide to put it on the fucking rails they just turn it into a rail shooter yeah and tell you exactly where you're going right let like, you fuck that throw some side boob at it and make this thing happen great side boo but still you know it's very disappointing the scene itself just so we don't have to return to it later is is like goofball comedy level of he comes in and her way of getting him to be interested is to moan seductively when she's like he's like jamming one of her vertebra and then somehow isn't supposed to think like that it was sexually arousing for him and then he's got to be bashful about it it's it's so unnatural. It's like from a different show. The whole the whole banter within the scene, like this isn't the relationship you two have ever had. That's the other part, too, is that goofy comedy was frequent through the first two seasons. This episode is very dark, very brooding, very aggressive. And the one light hearted comedic moment is this back rub scene. And they're using the comedy like this weird lubricant to also, again, facilitate another side boob scene and this erotic uh, ramrod scenario. So just bad mixed with bad. The whole thing sticks out like a sore thumb. And again, it could have been a beautiful uh, character progression and and just classic uh, Voyager ramrodding going on here. So. We finally arrive at the location of our action this week, which is this mine. good old caves. It is, in fact, a, the blue version of the caves. Felt and good seeing it, man. It's been a while. They do hang a whole bunch of extra shit all around. Like, they do a good job of dressing them up. 
but the contours of the caves are well known to all. And they get onto this dusty, cold, uh, very clearly contaminated uh, mining colony. Maybe it's in East Palestine. I don't know. And when they get there, they meet with the foreman who is a gnarly, dilly looking dude and extraordinarily well designed. His fucking his all of his makeup is pretty elaborate, showing his sort of degradation from breathing all of the toxic fumes. But he's got this outfit on, including like this this cage that he keeps bringing over to his face. It's like some uh, real Mad Max uh, Fury Road. Yeah, yeah, like the the shiny and new the the Chrome Boys. He's got some Chrome Boy look to him. Uh, he's got seeping open wounds that he keeps reaching up to like pick the scabs. This guy's a real greasy operator. He uh, does in fact have a Zindi working for him. Reed and Archer show up. Hey, we want to talk to this guy. He's like, well, you're gonna have to bribe me. I want precious metals and like, well, you know, we don't carry currency. And then there's like, well, you know, uh, liquid platinum or get the fuck out. And like, well, we're gonna have to strip insulation off the fucking engines to do it. But we can. Uh, off they go to do that. And eventually they come back down to the surface with, uh, that that's where all the stupid trip priming the, the romance stuff starts getting, uh, we've, we, we, I'm glad we speed run that and we can just focus on the rest of the episode. They come back down again. I I really like this guy. Great prosthetics on him. The entire (laughs) mining facility is just covered in dust. Uh, it's gnarly and nasty and gross and sick looking. And real, it looks it's sickly. Realistic. It's realistic, though, too. Like, I watch a lot of these industrial accident videos, and you start looking at, like, uh, metal processing facilities and stuff. And, like, if you're working with materials like this, and this actually, this mine, I forget if I wrote it down or not, but it's basically an asbestos mine. They're mining asbestos for insulation on starships. It's getting everybody sick. All the guards have respirators. The uh, quote unquote workers do not. And we will find out these are not workers. They are slaves. This is a slave colony. This guy's a slave driver. Uh, It's a miserable place. And I. It's a good throwback to Broken Bow, seeing what the. Like a dirty part of yeah, a dirty part of the galaxy looks like. What what does life look like outside the twenty fourth century Federation utopia? Right. Yeah, we do get a quick. There's a quick scene back on Enterprise, and as all this happens, where they give a finger of the guy to Archer as proof they have a Zindi, and that's when you get your first hint of this finger is from a Zindi, but not. It's because the guy that we have back at Starfleet Command is looks like a reptile. And this guy, according to his genome, is going to look like a dude like you. But they do come from the same, like, genetic line. So this is weird, and this probably requires more explanation. And also uh, pretty brutal that they just, instead of letting you see this guy happen to have his finger, which the foreman assures Archer, oh, it was an accident. They are finally given this Zindi, who in fact does look like a dude with shit on his forehead. They so, bring him in. Uh, yeah. And also, too, I, I meant to say to the foreman, and really this entire situation, real shades of, uh, what were they called? The Malorn, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. The polluters. 
the the Captain, Captain Planet, Planet, Planet villains. villains. Yes, but uh, you know, I I like the diseased look. It it's it's very real. It feels lived in, um, and I'm glad to see kind of that element popping up into play here. They take Archer down. They go, all right, you can deal with them here. Take your time. Take as much time as you want talking to this guy. And this guy is uh, not very easy to deal with at all. Uh, he knows that Archer wants something. And in exchange, this guy wants out of what he is going to now, uh, you know, pull back the curtain. Surprise, it's a slave colony. I don't want to <laughs> be here. You want what I know? Then I need something out of it. And he jerks Archer around a little bit. And that's when uh, Trip flips his shit and grabs this guy by the throat and slams him up against the wall and reminds everybody that I'm in my dark and broody phase now. What we get introduced to from this point forward is the danger is heavily armed warships are showing up with the intention of capturing Enterprise while it is where it is, because that's, of course, how they get miners is they capture people and they enslave them. And they know that they are in this trap, but now they have to expropriate the captain and trip from the planet so they can leave before the trap is sprung. And what this creates is a, a need for a, uh, a party to travel to the surface in order to retrieve the captain through military force. We get our first bit of the worst plot line of the season, and that is Hayes and Reed don't like each other. Probably because Hayes is better at his job than Reed is. Reed is fucking miserable. I do want to say that, you know, they get the alert that these warships are coming in, and to Paul contacts. Uh, before that, Archer goes to leave. Archer <laughs> figures out that he's trapped in the slave quarters now and his communicator doesn't work so we see uh you've been tricked uh this is now surprise gonna be a jailbreak episode lucky you're john archer you are great at escaping prison <laughs> so nothing to worry about there yeah he's definitely like above tom paris on that which is now that th that that is a legit high bar <laughs> it is it is an impressive skill it's his it's his character most steadfast ability is to escape actually this is going to be the most uh guns a blazing jailbreak we saw since the shoot when Janeway herself showed up with a triple shot phaser <laughs> uh to paul has a good conversation with uh scabby foreman and i love the dialogue in this scene because all of her not accusations, but like we see these ships, your supply ships coming. We see that they're heavily armed and the dude's got an answer for everything. Like uh, asbestos is worth a lot of money. This is a dangerous part of space. Our ships are heavily armed to keep pirates away. Like all of the answers are reasonable. And this would, I think like for enterprise specifically, usually be where like flimsy dialogue would rear its head. Real solid exchange. And again, I like the guy that they've got playing. Makes the it sound like this guy is, you know, done this kind of shit to people before. So he's got an answer, uh -huh. you know, for every question. But uh, despite dressing like a fool now, T'Pol is not, in fact, stupid. And she goes, all right, shit's wrong here. Reed, get a plan together to get the captain out. Unfortunately, uh, they have a little slip of the mind and everybody forgets that transporters are a thing. I do appreciate they are so far away from Earth now that like these shuttle pods are worth even more resources. So it 
if I was going to change anything, it'd be like, you know, you could have beamed them up and then had the Makos go down just to rescue the shuttle pod, which I mean, they give they give um, some reason for probably why they wouldn't have worked. They just need to acknowledge it. Like they were sure. deep underground or the trillium doesn't allow you to beam or something like that. Whatever. Yeah, sure. whatever. Could have been anything. They just need to acknowledge it. Uh, but not being able to do that, Reed and Hayes have what is going to be the beginning of this weird rivalry they have, which really seems to have to do with Hayes just being everything Reed wants to be and takes six of his dudes to go down and How rescue many the captain. are there total on the ship. Do you know 30? That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of dudes because Enterprise is already very thin on available space because it was a small ship they were trying to put a lot of stuff on so <laughs> even like the sacrifice of the storage room to turn into that movie theater kiosk area like that's a big ask and then putting another 30 bodies on there that should be pretty cramped i i would have loved if they would have came out of the retrofit with specific mako drop ships so like the starfleet shuttle pods for like cool exploratory stuff and then like mako drop like aliens drop ship for and now guns you're like what were like space marines from warhammer mm-hmm. 40k mm-hmm. just come in like the hand of god they kind of do because the plan is uh that they, they repel in from the top of the caves of hell just as archer and trip and the zindi are going to be executed and they drop in to you, you we talked about how this show only had shitty gunfights well, it's because every shitty was here. Before we get to this gunfight, let's focus on the shitty part. All right. Oh, that's true. They go through the sewers. Of all people, I should recognize this. You should. Yeah. Uh, finally, Archer's like, all right, we're trapped in here. The the Zindi guy who wants me to help him escape conveniently knows a way to get out. So I guess we're going to be rescuing this guy after all. They get out. They are trudging through literal shit. And they even mentioned there's 31 species in this slave camp and they're walking through the poop of 31 people. There's like turds. 31 floating species around. of species. People. There's like turds floating around by Trip's mouth. I'm like, you guys are going to be spending a lot of time in that decontamination room rubbing gel on each other, which, of course, you don't see because it's just two guys now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not sexy anymore. <laughs> Uh, I really like the part where they're crawling, like they get through the poops, they get into this plasma shaft, which is just a vertical wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I <laughs> I wouldn't have died, Joe. <laughs> I don't. I don't think I would have made it past uh, very many rungs on that ladder. You I would have I mean? not even the ladder because they get past the ladder and they're like crawling, like using cracks in the concrete. Mm-hmm. I I would have got my hand in there. I would have never gotten up two inches in that plasma. Uh, flute would have killed me. Whatever. They the the bad guy figures out. Okay, we can't find them. Uh, send out the troops. Where are they at? Oh, we see they're in these plasma things. We're gonna flush them out. They get out. Uh, they're yelling at each other because the fucking Zindi guy and <laughs> and Trip are trying to get through the door at the same time as the fireballs coming up the thing. Uh, Trip's like, "You motherfucker! You know, you almost got me killed." And then they notice they're all at gunpoint. Like, uh oh, and uh. Uh, Foreman Scabby's like it would have been cool if you guys could have just been slaves like everybody else but you're a pain in the ass and I'm actually a competent bad guy so uh, take them all to the surface and shoot them I'm done with these fools fortunately that's when that's when the best gunfight 
<laughs> starts. This is this is all this is it's pierced space and time. It made all of the other Enterprise gunfights we saw before shittier to draw its energy into it. These guys jump out of the ceiling. They are they are dropping fools like blat blat blat. Like they are wiping out a platoon of bad guys. They they're doing covering fire. Uh like one of them grabs a dude and breaks his fucking neck during the fight. Like you hear the sound effect go off. They're just snapping necks. One of them gets like the female make on the ground. She's got a tonfa and just whoops the shit out of him. And it's electrified and just jams it into his chest. I mean, it's no uh, laying prone bicycle kick to the dick, but it's still pretty (laughs) brutal. I want you to compare and contrast the scene that you see here, which looks like someone in the production staff finally played a video game and saw that like <laughs> gunfights could be cool. Yeah. Like what what a gunfight should look like. Like maybe they finally got around to like watching a Jet Li movie or something. Uh, and then contrast that to. Was it called the communicator where at the end they're going to hang uh, trip and Ar- or read an archer at the gallows and the invisible fucking cell ship comes down and they have like this sloppy <laughs> fucking Hanna-Barbera gunfight. Yes, that was the communicator. So you got guys jumping out of an invisible spaceship shooting all crazy while trips arm is invisible uh, versus what looks like a scene from the rock. It's crazy. And and I'm glad to finally see uh, some pretty solid ass action going on here. I will say that I don't always want to see gunfights like that in a Star Trek show with Starfleet. But given the circumstances, well, it's the Makos. And I think that makes a big difference here in, in terms of the story as well. Like, yeah. So these dudes kill these guys and they do not think twice about it. Like they literally have a sniper that blows a phaser blast right in a, a guy's head. Is that phaser? Or are they using plasma weapons? They're phaser weapons. They're, They're shooting like pulse phasers. Yeah. I, in my, in my mind, they were still using plasma and plasma could only be lethal. Cause that should be the big draw on the phase pistols is that you could stun or super kill. I'm sure they'll they'll flesh that out or there's, you know, Wikipedia articles I can read or something. But yeah, these guys are all badasses and uh, I don't think they take any hard casualties. Right. And, and I'm sorry, any deaths. So yeah, one guy they, gets shot, but or two guys get shot, but they're just, you know, that guy's going sickly. to the infirmary for two weeks. He'll be available for the next XCOM mission. But yeah, buddy, <laughs> there you go. But yeah, like this felt like an XCOM X, X, X Phil, you know, that's what this felt like. And it was, it was, this is a five star, you know, you, you wiped out all of the enemy aliens. And I like that they contrasted the, you've got Reed still holding his gun, like, like a monkey <laughs> loose in his hand, like flashing it around, you know, completely out of place. Then you've got these hard Marine dudes who are just killing people. It's like, this is the difference. You brought professionals. You brought professional murderers with you, and they will murder people on your command because that is what's required here. Very nice contrast. I liked it. It was also interesting that they had, uh, to me, they had Travis Mayweather flying the shuttle pod down. I think, uh, again, if you've got three warships creeping up on you, having your weapons guy and your best helmsman going down on this mission, 
probably not the best idea. I gotta give Mayweather line somehow. <laughs> I know, but poor poor man needs to eat. Yeah. So uh, the the goal here, though, and this goes back to the Hayes and Reed conflict, is that Hayes basically tells Reed, my Marines are better than your goofy security guys. And Reed ultimately, I think, knows it. But Reed wants to be in command of the mission, even though he should should be on the bridge. So they're going to go down, grab Archer, and hopefully be back up right as these other guys are appearing and they can jump off to warp. And and that's going to be that. And that's basically what goes down. Yeah. They make us wipe the floor with everybody. Unfortunately, Zindi guy gets tagged pretty good in the process. Uh, they get him up. They send him off to uh, sick bay where he dies. But he does manage to dictate a set of coordinates to basically honor his word to Archer to get got him out. Uh, albeit he would not survive the process. And they go to the set of coordinates and find that it has a asteroid field. But this asteroid field is there because it is a former planet that appears to have been where the Zindi were from maybe 120 years ago. So the, the, the plot is thickened. Their lead led to information, but not necessarily anything particularly solid yet. Um, but it's something and they decided to go deeper into the expanse. And at the end, you do get the, the bookend of the, the Zindi talking amongst themselves saying, you know, this is where they're headed next. Oh, no, they're headed and Jaws will eat them there. And then you get the PS2 cutscene insectoid saying, well, you know, if you don't finish the weapon soon, I'm going to go just fucking kill them anyway. I we skipped over some dialogue with the Zindi guy as he did start opening up about what the Zindi are. And he paints a very fragmented picture. He says that there are multiple. Basically, there's multiple species that call themselves the Zindi uh, and all of them are kind of right. And uh, there's vastly differing opinions of which Zindi is the strongest. So I'm very curious to see how this is going to flesh out. Was this a common ancestor that originated off of this homeworld that's thus been destroyed and like scattered to the winds and they've all greatly changed? Is the Zindi... Uh, the name of an alliance. And that's what we're seeing there, that Zindi Council, the, the Legion of Doom or the Separatist Council. And that's that's just an entire faction. Uh, so some cool questions I would like to see answered and uh, neat groundwork. Again, very heavy 9-11 overtones in this. And it's curious it took this long for that to surface. Maybe the wounds were too fresh. And they didn't want to implement something dark in what should have been a a, a light, a refreshing look on the future. I don't know. And finally, like, listen, you know, this other angsty 9-11 stuff is selling and we need to get this franchise uh, out of the red. I mean, so- I, I'm I'm sure that the relative level of. I'm sure they're failure to succeed the first two seasons is probably your primary reason for wanting to even refocus, right? Sure. Didn't go well. It's got to be different. 
there is a zeitgeist in public in in the popular culture. You catch it. You see how can I interpret this? How can I put a new spin on it? How can I do something different with it? How am I positioned to get people to watch this show? Right. Well, if I lean into it now being more of a terrorism military drama with a sort of suspense angle. I'm capturing a lot of that zeitgeist. I'm, I'm refocusing the show around a singular vision and an idea that's no longer, which was a big thing that you and I said a lot of. The show just did not have focus, did not know what the fuck it was about. Now it knows exactly what the fuck it's about. And you definitely wind up with better. I mean, this is the this is great compared to what compared to what we watch in season two. This is amazing. Um, you know, it's still a abusing uh julian blaylock's looks uh rather obviously uh but i think that aside from that complaint i have nothing bad to say about it um it sets up the stakes it introduces its new characters um you know everyone's motivations that everything is well paced nothing drags it's like it's very memorable you get in and you get 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 going how do you feel about archer in this Minus his I, bad new haircut. I mean, I, I think that they've decided his character is now going to be the driven leader, you know, out to save Earth and that he's got this noblesse oblige when it comes to this this commitment that will now define him. And I think that's a great place for his character to be. What I'm having difficulty with is like he's just not very well established as anything uh, up to this point. So it's it's hard to really like enjoy the path he's taking to like really like see the depth in it because in reality he was really nothing before, you know, aside from petulant, there wasn't like an, an archer trait. You know what Kirk is, you know what Picard is, you know what Cisco is, you know, you know what Janeway is. Uh, you even know what Michael Burnham is. <laughs> you don't know who Archer is. And that's not because it's like his character trait is his is that he's mysterious. He's just ill defined. They define him now, but I think that's because they just like it's with interesting. Everything. I mean, watching him in this episode, there's nothing to really criticize. There's no whining and there's no excessive like there, there's nothing to harp on. The person they put on screen is good and strong but for all intents and purposes it feels like it's a new character they just introduced here i'm not taking any joy in seeing him having like come out of a chrysalis and 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 resolved or galvanized it's just it's a new character and i feel like i'm going to have to learn what this guy is about now i would agree with you i would agree with you which you know at the end of the day if it's between that or a guy who's whining because uh his dog peed on a tree and he can't seem to see what's offensive about that i'll take the season three guy so if you don't mind sir tell me what it is we're watching next week we're going into anomaly season three episode two that's uh written by sussman directed by david striden enterprise is damaged by spatial anomalies and boarded by interstellar pirates who rob the ship of critical resources. Well, that's a solid Star Trek uh, plot device. Uh, certainly, we've already set the ante. We know that this is a goofy part of space with weird physics. It's already affecting the cargo bay. Uh, this seems like a great place for 
interstellar pirates to be hanging out here in the terminus system. So yeah, I, you know, that'll be something for us to really look at is this part of enterprise up against mass effect. Yeah. The, your terminus system comment makes a lot of sense. The, the isolated fringy part of the galaxy and trying to, you know, have some, you're going to have adventures here and there where you're kind of trying to like do the Star Trek thing, you know, mm-hmm. and then help out the locals. Um, that's still always going to be part of the mix, but it will have a, more of a purpose to it. And I'm looking forward to exploring with you, my friend. Cool. All right. See you next week. <laughs>